I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Michael Brody Waite. Michael is a TEDx speaker, author of Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts, CEO of a number of successful businesses, and seeks to help others live a mask-free life. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm good, man, but I'm embarrassed, and I'm not sure if I'm going to bring the same energy that you have. That was like the best intro I've ever had. Well, I usually start off kind of energetic, and then and then we sort of, uh, you know, meld into it. It's all downhill from there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Michael, there's there's so much I want to get to today. There's so much I, I want to talk to you about. Let's start with a quote you recently shared, um, and it was this. When we prioritize action over insight, we don't get lost in our head. What did you mean by that? So as a recovering addict, one of the things that I was taught in my 12-step program was that we value action over insight because we're trying to learn a new way to behave. And the way that we behave affects how we think, as opposed to the way that we think affects how we behave. And so when I'm teaching people how to be an authentic leader and, and start to live what I call mask-free, um, a lot of times people get really lost by all this inspiration and motivation around authenticity and all this philosophy and there's selective authenticity and curated authenticity and check the box authenticity. And they get so messed up in their head that I'm like, dude, it is as simple as am I hiding myself right now? Hmm. And so the way that you learn who you truly are is not by asking who you truly are. It's by asking who you are not in a moment and catching yourself in that moment. And that's how you reveal who you are. Thinking about that, how do you balance the need to take action, you know, what, what you're saying, with the importance of taking time to think, discuss, read, reflect? How, how do you balance that? So to me, I mean, you know, reading is an action. Um, it's just a lot of times I think a lot of people are, are overthinking what they're going to go do. Am I being authentic? Am I being authentic? Am I being authentic? Like in my area or am I being a good leader? Is a sales tactic going to work? And they get really lost in their head. So to me, it's, it's balancing, just like with an entrepreneur, it's balancing having the right strategy and putting enough time into strategy and then being able to execute within a strategic framework. So mm. um, case in point for a business, um, when you create a product and you create a sales model and you put a lot of thought into how you do that, 
the best way to actually learn if it's effective is not to stay in the boardroom and on the whiteboard, it's to go sell a hundred customers and learn. So then you take that data, you come back to a point of reflection and you think about it. So same thing with 12 step program for recovering addict, we go live life, but then we also do this thing called a 12 step meeting or a four step with a sponsor where we reflect and we try to learn and grow, or we do this thing called a daily inventory. Same thing with, you know, authentic leadership with the stuff that I teach is I tell people go take practical, authentic action. But at the same time, we've engineered into our lives uh, uh, different checkpoints where we're able to reflect on that action so that we can glean insight on how we want to be and how we want to act next time. Would you be able to give an example, sort of maybe how this has played out in your own life or, or someone else, of what it looks like to take action over insight? I'll tell you the first example that came to my head, non-professional example. Um, when I got into rehab, uh, September 1st, 2002, I woke up at the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage, California. That was my first day clean. And there was, uh, the 12 steps were on the wall. And the second step said something to the effect of came to believe in a higher power. At the time I was an atheist. And so I immediately said, this program cannot work for me. But they said, hey, don't worry about the second step. Just worry about the first step. Hmm. The first step was about admitting that I was powerless and that my life had become unmanageable. Well, in working the process just on the first step, that better prepared me to take the second step. And when I got to the second step, I learned that, hey, I don't need to believe in God. I just need to believe that there's something bigger than me, like all the, all the recovering addicts in a 12-step program can be bigger than me. Mm-hmm. A book can be bigger than me. A philosophy can be bigger than me. And suddenly I had more data that allowed me to achieve more insight, not by overthinking, but by actually executing. And so if you fast forward... Nine months into my recovery, I'm still asking myself, who is God? And I don't like, I'm, they're telling me to pray. And I'm like, I don't understand who I'm praying to. Tell me who I'm praying to. Tell me how it works. What's the difference between his will and my will? Like, I want to understand this. And my sponsor was like, just effing do it. <laughs> just do it. And then let's see what happens. Hmm. And that was so important because as a recovering addict, one of the things that makes me want to use drugs is to quiet the noise in my head. And so that got me into this practice of doing something, even if I didn't fully understand it. And if I didn't fully understand it, I was able to practice some level of surrender, which actually helped quiet my mind a bit. And then I started to feel peace. And I, and and for the longest time I'd be praying, I'd be like, dude, I don't know if you're some dude and like with a beard up there. Like, I don't know if you're mother nature. I don't know what I'm praying to. And to this day, 18 years later with 18 years clean, I can tell you, I can't describe the features of my higher power, but the intensity of the relationship that I feel is non-intellectual, it's experiential, and it's really significant and it guides me and I still can't explain what it is. But I came to that, I came to that experiential understanding, I came to that level of peace, that level of guide, uh, being able to be guided, not by understanding but by, by doing, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a CEO and stuff. I I believe in strategy all day, Mm -hmm. but I just think, especially when it comes to leading ourselves, we sometimes prioritize a little too much thought and a little too much insight. And and sometimes it's an excuse not to take action. Michael, we've, we've only been talking about, you know, five, six minutes or so, and, and you've already brought up, you know, AA, your recovery, and you've sort of taken us a bit into your story. How essential or or how at the core is that with all that you're doing, with all that you're leading, with all that you're writing and and helping people move forward? 
it's everything. It's literally everything. Every day I wake up and I thank God, not for my recovery, but before my addiction. Without my addiction, I wouldn't have found recovery. Without recovery, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I wouldn't be alive. So it's at the core of everything. And basically, my work is, is, is based off of the fact that when I got into rehab and I got clean, they didn't try to give me inspiration and tell me the what and the why around getting clean. They gave me the how. So many people have a drug addict in their life and they say, stop using drugs, stop using drugs. But you got to tell that addict what to start instead in order for recovery to occur. So I got a step-by-step program on how to get clean. Well, one of the things that I learned is I started to build a career and apply these principles that I was learning in a 12-step program to my professional career was that I started to learn that leaders were addicted to hiding themselves Hmm. and business people were addicted to hiding themselves. And there were four different ways that they did it. The first one is that they would say yes to things that they could say no to. 31 hours a month are wasted in meetings that are unnecessary on average. As an addict, I said yes to something that I should say no to in drugs. So I had to learn how to overcome that. And that gave me a competitive advantage at work. I became more efficient. Number two, hiding a weakness. At work, people are hiding their weaknesses around their growth opportunities. And as a result, suboptimizing their productivity and their ability to be successful for themselves, their teams, and their organizations. Well, I know what that's like because I was suboptimizing my life because I was hiding the fact that I was an addict. When I learned how to aggressively share my weaknesses, resources showed up, I was able to grow, but I had to humble myself to do that. Number three, avoiding difficult conversations. Right now, People in a company, 70% of people are avoiding a difficult conversation with their boss, another coworker, or someone that they manage. And for me, any, any conversation that would lead to an intervention was a difficult conversation that I tried to avoid. And that really inhibited me from really understanding myself and the other people around me and how they wanted to help and what was going on. And then number four, holding back your unique perspective. So many people in a working environment don't communicate a blind spot that they see or innovation that's an opportunity because the boss's boss is in the room or customers in the room or, or you know, and, and board members in the room or whatever. But for me, I've been hiding my true self for so long under the drugs just so that I could get them and be whoever you needed to me to be so I could continue to stay high. And I had to learn how to really channel my true self systematically in order to stay clean. And so what I learned was Drug addicts and leaders, and really people, everybody's a leader, but drug addicts and leaders are literally addicted to basically the same behaviors, except the difference is, is that I was addicted to drugs in the pursuit of a high, and I would, I would risk going to jails, institutions, or death, and leaders are addicted to hiding behind what I call a mask, hiding them, their true selves at work, and they're addicted to that for success. And so once you start to diagnose the problem through the addiction lens, suddenly an opportunity presents itself when it comes to authentic leadership that most people don't have access to. And that is there is a time-tested proven method for people to recover from addiction. So if the reason that we're inauthentic in leadership is because we're addicted to being inauthentic, maybe we can use a recovery process to suddenly become an authentic leader. So it's, it's integrated into everything that I do. What was the turning point where, where you started to see your recovery or even your addiction, like you said, as a positive? It really was when I was working my way up the corporate ladder at a Fortune 50 company. Um, I I I didn't have a college degree. I stood out because I I was a Californian in Nashville, Tennessee, saying "dude" with long hair, hoop earrings, and flip flops, and people just didn't know what to do with me. Um, but my thing is, is that like 
and I was going to 12 step meetings at night and they told me that I had to practice the principles in the program because my life depended on it. And so it made it easier for me to say no to things, to share my weaknesses, to have difficult conversations and to share my unique perspective at work. And in doing those things, I was more efficient because I said, no, I grew faster because I shared my weaknesses. I was better at negotiations and just performance management and performance in general, because we had the difficult conversations and I didn't care who was in the room. I would share my unique perspective because as far as I was concerned, I was playing with house money. I should be dead. And by applying these principles at work, I went from the guy that had a mentor to being the manager of that mentor. I got promoted eight times in eight years with no college degree as a recovering drug addict in my 20s with hoop earrings and long hair. And, and I realized that this gave me a competitive advantage because most people in the working world are not practicing rigorous authenticity. Mm. They are too focused on what other people think and it hinders their ability to be successful. Um, and they don't know how to do this thing called uncomfortable work. They know how to do smart work and hard work, but they don't know how to do uncomfortable work. And the only class of people on this earth that are systematically trained how to do those things like their life depends on it are drug addicts that are in recovery. Mm. Michael, I'm thinking of, of a recovering addict that, that might be listening to this. You know, they have a job, right? To what degree should they let people at work? know about their addiction and past? I know for you, you're very upfront, right? What would you advise them? Oh man. So first of all, I would not advise them anything because their journey is their own, but right, I will cool. share my experience. I think anonymity in a 12-step program is very valuable, especially in early recovery. Okay. But one of the things that we are taught is essentially how to take a mask off by putting a mask on. We're taught that, hey, in here, you can be with other fellow recovering addicts and learn how to be your true self. But out there, you still have to, we don't teach people that, but there's a stigma in our society that you have to hide the fact that you're an addict. Yeah. And so what I want to do is I just want to balance that narrative. Anonymity is a personal decision and there's ways to follow traditions to do it correctly so that you're not representing a 12-step fellowship. So for example, you said AA, I don't, I don't go to AA, but I do go to a 12-step fellowship, but I don't say which one because I'm not trying to be a spokesperson for it, but they're all very similar. Um, but what I would say for that recovering addict is, what if the worst thing about you could be the best thing about you? What if your ability to own your story and lean into that fear is what makes people connect to you and trust you even more and makes you even more successful. What if the opportunity cost is greater than the fear of what happens when someone thinks that you're a drug addict? And in my personal experience, I've had some people take advantage of me being this open, but I've had far more opportunities presented to me because I have the ability to connect with people by just doing what drug addicts do. Hmm. So they have a choice. I'm not saying they have to follow my path. That would be arrogant. But I, I do think that I want to illuminate another option for them. You've talked a lot about living a mask-free life, and, and you've given some examples. But let's talk specifically about that. What does that mean to live a mask-free life? So I, I think everybody's hiding behind a mask. So when I was in rehab 18 years ago, they had me uh, do a collage of a mask of the person that I presented to the world and then do another one of who I really was. And they were starkly different. One was strong, one was not. So I think that, you know, in general, we are all um, systematically, like almost as a, as a background program in our brain, constantly analyzing what people think about what we say, think, do, wear, eat, whatever. And we're constantly trying to manage perception in some degree, not intentionally necessarily a lot of the times. 
but we're managing perception in order to be more accepted, more liked, more successful or what have you. And so living a mask free life is the ability to master three principles. And I've already kind of said them, but it's the principle of practice, rigorous authenticity. And I don't mean authenticity, the buzzword. There's a reason I say rigorous. I'm not talking about selective or check the box authenticity. Anybody can keep it real in front of grandma. I'm talking about rigorous authenticity, like no matter what is on the line in my book, in my Ted talk, I talk about being authentic in a job interview, being authentic with a customer where the whole company's on the line, being authentic, where it costs me a million dollars. I'm talking about rigorous authenticity, being true to yourself in word and action, no matter the price. And the truth is, is that the reason that I say there's three principles to living mass free is because that's a philosophical principle. That's not actually action. I haven't said anything about action yet. I've just said, this is what is true to you. And so these three principles go together. And the next one is surrender the outcome, because what we have to do is the reason that we want to hide ourselves is because we're scared of an outcome. We're scared something's not going to go the way that we want. Someone's not going to like us. We're not going to get the customer. We're not going to teach the kid because I know you're in education, like whatever it is, the parents aren't going to like us. We're worried about the outcome. And people focus so much on the things that they can't control that they sap themselves of the energy that they need to control what they can control. And so when we surrender the outcome and we're able to double down on what we can control, usually we identify uncomfortable work that we are not doing. And most people think that they know how to do uncomfortable work, but they don't. They know how to do smart work and hard work. That's physical and intellectual. Mm -hmm. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's literally positive things that we can do, but we avoid them because of a sensation in our body. We all know we should eat healthy. We all know we should work out. We all know we should budget appropriately. We know if you're a parent with young kids, you should stay away from your cell phone. But that's all uncomfortable work and it's really hard to do. But if you can practice rigorous authenticity and identify what mask you want to wear, do you want to say no? Do you want to hide a weakness? Do you want to avoid difficult conversations? Do you want to hold back your unique perspective? If you then can surrender the outcome of what happens if you take off that mask, i.e. get over the fear of what you can't control, double down on what you can, you release a tremendous amount of energy that allows you to do more uncomfortable work than the next person, which will in effect actually make you more successful in work and life. So let's talk about these these three, right? Let's let's start with authenticity. Is there a point when we can share too much or become maybe even too authentic? Absolutely. People mistake authenticity with transparency and honesty, and they're gotcha. neither. So honesty is a binary thing. It's transactional. It's either true, you were either honest or you weren't. Okay. Yeah. There's theoretically a holder of the truth. It's transactional, it's binary. Okay. Authenticity is being true to yourself in word and action, is acting in a way that is congruent with your value system. Only you can know that. And as a dynamic human being, you have multiple values that will conflict with each other. Hmm. And you're also constantly changing. So, and I can give you an example of where I did something that people would think is dishonest, but it's truly authentic, if that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, so I was running a nonprofit for three years that helped 2,000 entrepreneurs start a grow a business a year. And when my TED Talk went viral, um, I wanted to write the book and I resigned and I went to the board and I gave them my resignation. And they said, hey, we're really worried about organizational stability and we don't have a plan for your backfill. So will you wait three weeks before you communicate this to anyone on your team so that we can get our plan together? Because once we communicate this to the world, we're not going to be able to get you know um, ahead of it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I would be in a meeting with my leadership team and we'd be talking about something happening six months from now. And, and I would act like I was going to be there or I, I wouldn't tell them that I wasn't. And it was killing me. But the only reason that I wanted to tell them that I wouldn't be there was because I wanted to not be dishonest or to not wear a mask. 
The problem is, is that that my motivation was self-serving and my value is relatively superficial was how I would look. What was more important to me was my value of doing what's best for the organization, regardless of what's best for me. And so in order to do that, I had to essentially pretend that I was going to be there for three weeks so that they could get their stuff together. Because at the end of the day, my value of not hurting the organization was greater than my value of looking congruent with my values. The irony is not lost on me. And so I was being authentic. I was being true to myself in word and action, but someone might be like, well, dude, you weren't being honest. I'd be like, yeah, I just, I had to choose the value that was more important. And I had a similar experience when, after the Ted talk happened and I had a, this like three month window where I thought I was Tony Robbins and I started <laughs> like, just like doing interventions on all my friends and all my friends are recovering addicts. And I told you, we don't give advice. We just share experience, but I'm like, you know what you need to do is X. And so I thought I was being authentic and I was, I did think I knew what my friends should do, but all three of them, Charlie, Toby, and Kate, they all came back to me and said, dude, what the F are you doing? <laughs> like, this is not, this is arrogant. This is unsolicited advice. This makes me not want to talk to you. It's not what we do in recovery. And so what I realized was my value of telling someone how I think they should live their life was not nearly as great as my value of respecting my friends. And in that, I got a feedback loop where I said, you know what, here's an opportunity for me to grow. And so that value went out because I want to be true to my, my, my most, my most true self. And I've got layers of value systems, layers of understanding of those value systems. And I'm never fully mask free myself. I, anybody, I have a mask assessment that tells your authenticity percentage and anyone that scores over 60%, I know is a liar. Like it's just not possible, dude. If you're really authentic, you know that you're never fully authentic. And so living mask free is putting these three principles at the center of how you live, but it doesn't mean that you're always going to be um, mask free. It just means that you're setting, you're building a life around the goal of living mask free and you're doing it more often than you're not. So thinking about authenticity still, um, I'm trying to get my head around, uh, you know, all of the things that you're sharing and the insight that you're bringing. What, what could be a litmus test for me, okay, use me as an example, right? I want to determine, am I being authentic or am I being arrogant or am I being this or that or the other? What's a litmus test that I'd be able to utilize to know if I'm truly being authentic? Uh, give me a situation. I'll be able to tell you. So I'm, I'm rehabbing a house and, uh, and I'm sharing with uh, friends and so forth ab about a house, about the project that's, that's going on. And, and I can't determine if you know, I'm sharing to be authentic, to be who I am, or I'm sharing so that they could like give me props and, you know, give me respect mm. for sort of what I'm doing. I think that's a great example. Um, so here's the litmus test. What's your motivation? Are you trying to change the way they see you? Or are you trying to genuinely share with the people that care about you something that's going on? You know, I hope it would be just to share you know, yeah. who I am, but, but I really appreciate that. And you did this earlier as well, you know, not giving a one size fits all solution. And, and I really appreciate how you're encouraging me, you know, as we're, as we're talking and, and the listeners as well to go deeper, right. To, 
to get deeper below the surface and and that motivation thing uh is doing that for me and uh and i hope it's uh doing it for whoever's listening thank you for saying that by the way because uh someone was like you know what you're doing you'll be as big as tony robbins i'm like no i'm not because i care too much about people having the impact and Hmm. i'm not going to just give them the stuff that makes them feel high on a weekend from self-help i want them to actually change their life and it's not that simple Hmm. Um, but the, the motivation thing is, is, you know, that's a great example, but it's also an example just to tie it back of action over insight. You may not know which it is. You go take the action. As long as you're willing to be aware and ask yourself the question over time, was I wearing a mask or not? You will learn over time whether or not you were being sincere and whether your motivation was to share or to influence because they will respond in a certain way that will disappoint you or excite you and you'll start to learn okay this was my motivation and and you do it enough and you ask yourself that question often enough you'll start to establish a trend and then it'll become very clear for you what your definition of being authentic is in that moment good yeah so even asking myself that question is an action because i'm doing something yes exactly right Surrender the outcome. What does it look like to surrender the outcome, but still fight to influence the outcome? Yeah, great question. Uh, or like the way you asked it is really great because because it's again it's not as simple as just, oh just let everything go. Like no, yeah, it's not exactly. Yeah, that sounds great. Sounds great. In rehab, they put me like they had me hang halfway off of a uh, the ledge of a of a mountain as like an act of faith. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to totally be free and and like, let everything go. And no, I fought the whole thing the whole time, dude. (laughs) Like I, I, even though I knew it was safe, I I literally couldn't just let my body fall. Hmm. Um, so to me, and this is, so there's a saying in recovery, surrender to win. And it's, it's, it can be cliche, but it's so true. (sighs) What we learn is that if we can genuinely surrender the outcome, we are actually more likely to be successful over the long haul as a human. Hmm. But we have to be willing to sacrifice every transaction in order to get to that lifelong goal. So um, as an example, to surrender the outcome means, so uh, I got out of rehab and I I was uh, in the halfway house and I had to interview for this job to, to, to be able to stay in the halfway house. And I only got one job interview. And, um, the guy like that I was going to interview with, I knew was going to ask me about this three year gap on my resume. And if I didn't answer him in a way that he liked, I wasn't going to get the job. And if I didn't get the job, I'd be out on the street and I'd probably relapse and die. And so I call my sponsor. I'm like, what do I do? And he's like, tell him anyway. Hmm. And that's an example where, um, I had to surrender the outcome and it wasn't perceivable to me how it would help me get what I want. Hmm. So the way that we surrender the outcome, first of all, is we have to identify what we can't control and what we can. Most people know the serenity prayer, some version of it. A lot of people talk about this, but I'm talking about going through an actual process where you take out a piece of paper, you write can't in the top left, you write can in the top right, you write out who and what you can't control on the left-hand side, you write who or what you can't control on the right-hand side, and then you start Xing out all the things you can't control and circling the things that you can control. And when you do that, you will see uncomfortable work that you have been missing. Hmm. And so for me, and, and what we're doing in that process is we're actually engaging the brain in an activity that reclaim, that releases us from the outcome and reclaims a tremendous amount of energy that allows us to double down on what we can control and do uncomfortable work, which in effect makes us more successful. So... I couldn't control that I was an addict. I couldn't control that I had this job interview. 
but I could control if I called my sponsor, I got spiritually right. And I was aligned. I could, I could control whether I called him right before I walked in to help offset the fear. But the thing is, is that when I went in there, I told him I got the job anyway. My success was not in getting the job. My success was doing what most people do is go into a job interview and be scared to death to share the worst part about you about in a professional job interview and to be able to have that win under my belt created a victory I could have never seen. I'm going around the world telling that story now because that became the foundation of my understanding that we hide too much of ourselves in the professional world and we're not challenging the assumptions about what could go wrong well enough because sometimes things go right. So that created an entire foundation of my understanding of what being true to yourself and work and life meant. And I could have never perceived that victory. And so I can tell you time and time again, where I surrendered and I either reclaimed enough energy to actually affect an outcome just by focusing on what I can control, or I surrendered and I unintentionally reclaimed enough energy to create a victory that I couldn't even see. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's really helpful. And it sort of goes to the the third part of the mask-free life, um, doing uncomfortable work. And, you know, you mentioned it earlier, uh, you know, a lot of times we don't want to do the uncomfortable work, but you also mentioned that that there's a benefit at the end of that uncomfortable work, or, or you alluded to that. What's an example of someone who you've seen do some uncomfortable work, and there was this benefit that came at the end. And the reason I'm asking this is to sort of unpack that uncomfortable work as people are listening to this and we can sort of understand it better, that uncomfortable work, you know, there's more than what meets the eye sometimes. Yeah, that's a great question. So I want anyone listening right now to picture somebody in your life that you have some tension with or fear. You have a relationship with them, but it's not optimal. Could be someone that's senior to you, peer to you, junior to you, friend, family, could be all of the internet, doesn't matter. <laughs> Think about someone that you've got tension with and the chances are that you're avoiding a difficult conversation with them. And so I coach companies and leaders and stuff. And so the number one manifestation of avoiding a difficult conversation in the leadership world is avoiding performance management, avoiding actually managing employees to expectations because what that requires is that you have to actually tell them when they suck, when they don't think they do. Mm. And that creates a very uncomfortable situation. It triggers a fight or flight response in our body because we are going to risk belonging to their tribe when we do that. And the best story I can give as an example of that is when I was building my company, I needed a director of finance. My mom was a financial manager and had her own equipment leasing company. And she came to be my director of finance and I had rolled a performance improvement plan on like 15 employees prior to, prior to this moment where you either manage, you tell them, Hey, you're not meeting expectations and you're either going to have to meet expectations or we're going to have to fire you. And there was no more difficult conversation than when I had to roll out a performance improvement plan on my mom. Oh, wow. As the CEO of my company. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about a difficult conversation. That's a really difficult conversation. But here's the thing. If I hadn't, she would have continued to not meet expectations and I would have resented her. Mm -hmm. I would have been a poor leader. We would have had worse results. And eventually she would have left or I would have fired her anyhow and it would have soured our personal relationship. But because I was able to take off the mask, 
surrender what this meant, surrender the things I couldn't control, surrender the outcome and go in and do the uncomfortable work. She was actually able, A, we were able to, she didn't like it. I'm not saying she, she told me, she's like, I'm mad at you. And I'm like, I understand. <laughs> like, I, it's not like a movie where she's like, oh my God, you're so right. And then like yeah, run off exactly. to a rainbow in the end. <laughs> it, it was difficult. And I'm actually yeah. in the difficult, I'm in the middle of yeah. one of those with her right now, actually. But I, that, that moment gave me the, the confidence. So hmm. she was able to surrender also because she is also a recovering addict. Hmm. She has twice as many years as I have in recovery. She was able to surrender the outcome of what that, what that meant for her and not focus on what she couldn't control, which was what I thought and what the team thought. And she focused on what she could control and she did uncomfortable work. And so that meant that she performed better. We performed better. Our relationship was square. It was efficient. I wasn't staying up late up at night, rerunning a conversation in my head. How many people have had someone in their life where they keep almost on a loop repeating, I can't believe they did X. I can't believe they said Y. I can't believe whatever. And then you got to ask yourself, have you actually had this straight up difficult conversation? If you hadn't, you're costing yourself a lot of energy. You're costing them a lot of energy and you're potentially leaving a lot of opportunity for mutual understanding on the table just by not having it. That's a perfect example. Uh, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And that's definitely a close one to you. I want to zero in on education for a moment. You know, yeah. I'm an educator. Some of our listeners are educators or, or they're interested in educational trends. What could an educational leader, so I'm thinking about administrators, principals, learn from the stuff that we're talking about today or some of your other materials, like in the books that you've written? So believe it or not, I actually have two solid answers to this because I, I was excited to be on this podcast because I think there because we've been thinking about education the entire time we've been building what we've been doing. It's it's part of our end game. So um, first things first, for the adults that are in the education system, the teachers, the principals, the uh, boards, the uh, all the politicians, like everybody that's involved, education is a highly political environment. Mm -hmm. It's an environment rife with masks. You know, while we focus on what's actually happening in the classroom, there's a lot of stuff happening outside of that classroom that has a lot of masks. And so I think that for anybody that finds himself in that dynamic, it's really easy to be discouraged or depleted by some of the challenges that you incur. But I would encourage you that if you can lead yourself and live and lead mask free, you'd actually be creating an opportunity to lift other people up and potentially create a different narrative and a different opportunity for whatever it is that you're doing from your perspective. Hmm. Um, whether it's a teacher pushing back on, you know, unrealistic expectations or, um, you know, pushing back on parents and not just catering to them, like whatever it is, I don't know enough about education, but I do know it's a highly political environment. And I've had a number of different educators say this, this, this information and this system really works for me. And that, and that's something that we've learned as we've been doing this. But part of our end game was this, when I was a kid, I, I went to school and I learned a lot of, a lot of subjects. The one thing I never learned was how to deal with life and life's terms. No one ever gave me the instructions for how to deal with life and life's terms. And as a result, I felt uncomfortable in my skin. And so there's a stat out there that you're probably familiar with, and maybe I'm citing something that's incorrect, but it said something like 65% of the jobs that the children in school right now will be doing aren't even invented yet. Yeah. And so what we are teaching them currently is not necessarily positioning them for success in their future jobs, but here's what I can tell you as somebody that's built companies and coach companies and all this kind of stuff. When it comes to leadership and business or organizations in general, in the working world, we talk a lot about strategy and execution. We don't talk enough about the masks 
that are hiding the problems that hinder strategy and execution. And if you can master how to live mask free and lead yourself, you can actually not only be more successful in your work life, but you can have less problems and more freedom in your personal life so that you can thrive in both. And so right now, part of our dream and our hope long-term, which we've always said is that these three principles will be taught in rehab centers, in schools and in business schools alike, because it's all about learning how to lead yourself. And if these children are really, or, or, you know, adults or whatever are really the future generations, they need to learn how to lead themselves before they start focusing on how they lead others. Let's go into a classroom. Maybe it's your classroom back in the day. Maybe we'll travel back in time, or maybe it's someone else's classroom. Not a fun (laughs) time for me. I got, I got, I got some flashbacks now. Okay. All right. Seventh grade, I got pantsed in front of a teacher. That was not something I want to relive. Okay. That's, that's the pants free life, right? Yeah, that's, yeah exactly. <laughs> what, how would this look, you know, trying to teach students, like, like you're saying, to live this mask free life, even as a, even as a seventh grader, what could this look like? What do you envision this looking like? So the first thing that I think of is I, so I, I meet my mind immediately goes to two different types of pressures. There's the academic pressure and the social pressure. And so when I think about academic pressure, um, I think about children today, what, no matter where they are, they're trying, they're like seriously becoming like robots and machines trying to maximize their productivity and trying to almost be inhuman and how much they can do in order to quote unquote, get ahead or whatnot. Um, and, and then there are children that unfortunately due to our education system that don't have that luxury and are just trying to survive at home and, 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 and in the classroom, but in the classroom, there's this academic pressure. And I think that a lot of times we want to pretend that we've got it, that we understand. Hmm. And so the mask of hiding a weakness was one that I think held me back a lot as a, as a child, you know, not everybody learns the same, not everybody relates to the information the same way. And yet we kind of teach education on rails, right. In, in certain ways. And so just in the, in the design of how we do education, the way I understand it, we are sub-optimizing for a significant majority of this or a significant percentage of the students. And so if we were to say, hey, if this isn't working for you or if you're having trouble, let us know. Now, if you do that, if you, if they, if you tell them that, there's no way they're going to let you know. It's scary as all get out. I don't want to disappoint the student, the, the, I mean, the teacher, the parent, or the kids around me. But if you teach kids Hey, part of being a great student is practicing rigorous authenticity. If you can know yourself, you can grow yourself, right? Mm. If you teach kids, Hey, you can't control what the people around you think. You can't control what I think. You can't control what the parents think. And you can't control if you're having trouble, but you can surrender all those things that you can't control. That's something that we believe in and that we value here. And you can focus on what you can control, which is to ask for help. And you know what, when you do that, you can do uncomfortable work. And I, and, and I, as a teacher right now, I'm going to tell you about a time where I was hiding a weakness and I had to practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. Cause I'm going to go first and make this safe for you. Hmm. And they do that for a student regarding an academic challenge. Well, you can do the exact same thing for a social challenge. And I'm not, I'm not an educator. I'm not a child psychologist. I'm just a dude that went to class one day and got pantsed. And now I'm on a podcast (laughs) talking about it. But what I know is true is no one ever taught me how to deal with my fear of what people thought that include my parents, my, my teachers, my, my peers, anybody there. And I can't tell you how much I held myself back from my own potential success academically or socially 
for fear of what other people thought, but if they could institutionalize this as a discipline, the way that 12 steps somehow had made me feel cool for admitting that I suck, made me feel cool for saying I'm powerless and made me feel cool for doing uncomfortable work. If they can do that for a grown ass man, who's a recovering drug addict, they can do that for a kid. When we're engineering and codifying what it means to be socially successful and academically successful. But the problem is instead we focus to some degree on achievement or we pay lip service to these gaps without really giving people, it's the same problem with leaders. Most people don't actually have a step-by-step system for how you lead your authentic self. Hmm. Like literally nobody has that. Like this is the world's first authentic leadership system. And so it's actually a way that you can take all of the challenges and step-by-step create a provable process that's repeatable to overcome them. If you teach kids how to do that, you're going to be able to teach them so much more, I think. Not just in work, but not not just eventually for when they get to work or, or education or whatever, but like in life. Yeah, yeah. Do you that, think that's that. BS? Do you think I just BS? Do you? I don't know. What do you think? You're in the space. <laughs> I'm still because I don't know. I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I'm right. I'm willing to admit that. Yeah, I think I think a lot of those things are right. Uh, there's a lot of things that jump out to me of the things that you're saying. You know, the one is the industrialized model of education, um, and that makes me sad thinking about that. Because I, I totally agree. But then off, off to the other side, yes, I think there's a big calling right now. And they're talking about social emotional learning. And I think what you're talking about goes right into that. It speaks to that and, and what students need right now. And it's more than just the math problems, right? It's how do I live this life? How do I understand how to move forward? And how am I going to be able to do the jobs that aren't even created yet and the stuff that you're talking about, I think, prepares students better than doing a worksheet or, you know, memorizing yeah. something for a test. And uh, and yes. So, yeah, I think you're on something. All right. Cool. I like that. But I mean, even as you said, I'm like, dude, you can learn math on YouTube. I know. Like, but but it's really hard to learn how to lead your authentic self on YouTube. Yes. Yes. Without a doubt. And uh and I appreciate, you know, all of your insight and sharing your examples as well. And your stories have been super helpful. As we come to a close here today, uh, Michael, who do you want to give a shout out to? I'm going to give a shout out to Brene Brown. She'll probably never talk to me and I'll pee on myself if I ever meet her. But she inspired all my work and let me unleash the recovering addict in the leadership world. So Brene, I love you. Time for the final word. Michael, what would you like to say to close out this podcast? I don't care whether you are a child or a parent, whether you're an educator, a business person, stay-at-home parent. I don't care if you're in the boardroom, the mailroom, the classroom, or the living room. Inside of you is a great leader. And what if the path to understanding how to be a great leader was in answering this question, what if the worst thing about you wasn't the worst thing about you? What if it was the best thing about you? And what if your capacity to share and own that story is what would allow you to lift up and help others no matter where you are and no matter what your responsibilities are? Right now, I think the only way that you can tap into that great leader systematically is if you do what drug addicts do. Michael, thank you. And thank you for that final word. This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And thank you for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time, sharing your experiences, your insight, and how that can transform 
leadership. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcast. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. <laughs>